welcome again to Film Shots. I'm Joel Marshall, and my co-host, Dr. Jesse Rines, is not here today, but he will be here soon. We're hoping that he's coming back very soon, and uh, we say hi to him. Uh, I'm here today, I'm in Long Beach, California, and I'm in the home of, Sharon, is this your home? Linda's home. Oh, it's Linda's home. Mm -hmm. I'm in Linda Brown's home, Linda J. Brown, and Sharon Blumenthal. They are filmmakers, and uh, they have a, a movie that's called Take Two, the movie. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it, it's a brand new movie, from what I understand. It's just been completed. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to talk to them about filmmaking and the process that they went through to make this film and then other films that they've done. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. All right. So <laughs> can you tell me something about um, Take Two, the movie? Uh, yeah, it, uh, it's an independent film. Mm -hmm. um, I think that um, it's a very personal film. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very, very difficult to make. I would say one of the most difficult projects that I've ever worked on. Is it, was it difficult because it was personal? Or for technical reasons? Or both? No, it wasn't. The, the personal aspect didn't make it difficult. It was difficult because... Um, what we were trying to do, mm -hmm. uh, doing an independent film on a certain budget, and we had so many locations. I, I would say for technical reasons it was very difficult. Now, yeah. from what I understand, I haven't seen the film, but from what I saw on the website, and the website is take2themovie.com, I believe, Right. and we welcome everybody to go check that out, there's a mixed media element to this film. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's correct. And how is that... How was that done? Uh, I understand there's some film and some digital, and there were some, from what I understand, there were some kind of projections made yeah. in the film? Yeah. One of the things that we thought of, and Linda, you can jump in at any point, because Linda is the cinematographer. Oh, I want to clar clarify yeah. there. Linda is the cinematographer on the film, mm -hmm. and, I'm the and Sharon is the director. And right we here. are both um, part of Nonlinear Productions, which is the company that produced it. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make one correction. The actual title of the film is Take Two, not Take Two, the movie. Oh, I said Take the Two, movie, the movie. The movie but is I'm just on the website. But I was thinking that's a good title. Yeah, I should change it. I Take Two, the movie. I like that. You know, I'm a little gun-shy because I was interviewing Dan Mervish, the Slamdance founder, uh -huh. and I had said, his film is called Omaha. And then he's like... Omaha the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you added it to that. So now I added it and to it yours. It could be a whole genre of like those films. I do like Take it. Take two movie then. Yeah. So yeah, because it definitely is a movie inside a movie and movie. You know, I a lot of films that I've done for whatever reason, I like to see like more than one reality in the frame, having to do with time. You know, like the past and the present. Mm -hmm. How can you incorporate incorporate that into the mise en scène into the actual frame. That's one thing. And the second thing is uh, a film has a lot of driving shots. It's mm -hmm. almost like a road movie. Right. But in order to do a road movie, um, it can be quite expensive because you need certain kind of equipment to do that. And uh, then you know have to clear off the roads and get special permission. And um, I mean, you can up your budget so, 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 so quickly. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, you're like stealing the shots. And we've done that in the past. And no. <laughs> no. Stealing the shots. Yeah, I mean, we, we've done that where we've had to not, we didn't get the permission. Uh -huh. Like, and we, we were on the freeway, you mm -hmm. know, with uh, 
with these little plates on the car that, you know, the cameras aimed into the windows and mm -hmm. eventually we got stopped and it could be very expensive. I don't know. I mean, around Los Angeles, you see this a lot. In other parts of the country, maybe not as much, but you'll see a car driving by that has all this camera equipment on yes. the outside of it, and they're actually filming a scene where people are actually driving a car, and usually they'll have police escorts. Yeah. It's kind of an expensive thing to do. Yeah, very. So um, that would be out of the question. And then also, this, if you don't get the right equipment, the sound is impossible, mm -hmm. and the dialogue is lost, so you have to do a lot of looping, that is, the actors come in later, uh, to, and that's expensive also. So, how so, are we going to do this film, you know, uh, with these limitations of finances? And we just, uh, I've done this before, we, we um, came up with the idea of doing rear screen projection, mm -hmm. like they did in the old days, yeah. or, or more recently, like... Oliver Stone did a Natural Born Killers. Loved that movie and loved mm -hmm. what he did with it. Yes. We, we didn't try to hide the fact that it was rear screen. But it wasn't blue screen or green screen either. It wasn't, you know, a video sort of a look. It was, it was actually the old, you know, old kind of rear in screen. In the shot. You were basically... So when you say the old time, old time way of doing it, like in a movie when you see where they projected the uh, outside of the car behind the car and then they shoot and the car is actually just like up on blocks and they... Exactly. Just like that. Okay. And we did that in another film with Doris Roberts and uh, other um, John Randolph and Taylor Negron, where we had uh, our set designer, Stuart Campbell. He built a Cadillac on a Lazy Susan, mm -hmm. and he, like we turned the car in different directions to get all the different angles. And this was the short film that you did. Yeah, was one of the shorts. What was that short film called? Walking to Wall Time. Walking to Wall Time. Yeah. So anyway, this was another chance to do that, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we went a step further with the projection. Is when you know when you're driving along, even with your friends, you talk about old times, right? Mm -hmm. know, remember we did this? Remember we did that? Sure, like so a, the, when you're driving a long distance. Yeah, so what we did is, because these people are very close, the two main characters are best friends, and she started a film on him, because he's a painter. Mm -hmm. So what we see out the window sometimes is their memory. Oh, great. So when we see the memory, we did that in film. I like that. Yeah. So. And you did it simultaneously while you were shooting it, and you never put it in later. Right. No. It's it, it, like Sharon said, it's an old technique. We had done it a number of times in other films. We did some films for Showtime that we did this same technique. So I got pretty good at it. And um, again, my whole idea of it is I don't want it to look realistic, to mm -hmm. actually play against that, to have it be more expressionistic, more formalistic, um, which is not the way it was originally intended to be. But today with special effects, things look so real that for me, when I'm working in an independent world, I can't fight that. I can't do a better job. I don't have the budget. So I'll never compete with Hollywood's effects. Mm -hmm. So my thinking is if you're going to use an effect, use it to not look realistic. Use it in the other way. Because, you know, embracing your handicaps in independent film is something that I always talk about, especially with my students, to say don't try to compete because you don't have the time and the budget to do it. So play against that. That's so. a, that is great advice. Now, Linda, what was the film shot on? We shot with um, a Sony uh, uh, DSR 500. DSR 500, sorry. A, a DV and, cam. And also then 16 millimeter. Okay. Um, and those are the two formats that we put together. But. And the 16 millimeter sometimes was the film within the film, the documentary. And then other times we just kept it on the set 
with film in it, ready at any time, if one of us would feel like we just should grab a little shot and this feels like it should be film. Uh, we didn't have a adhere to the pattern that it could only be used a certain way. We wanted mm -hmm. to just say, what if this felt this felt better than it needed to be filmed? And then when we looked at it, whatever felt right, Sharon cut the film. Um, she would put it in. We tried to at first try to cut the film together, but that didn't work. It was it was, was it so really difficult. It was personal, mm -hmm. and so what would happen is she would cut, and I would come in and I would make comments. And mm -hmm. I had an editor work. come in um, at the end, uh, who who gave it a nice pacing because. Um, I started out as a poet, and sometimes it just became too lyrical, you know. Too. Sometimes so, you get kind of so lost in the film that you need an outside eye to come in and yeah, say, you definitely. know, I don't understand this part. That's, this doesn't. That doesn't yeah, make and sense also she gave it. She saw it. She was good. She gave it more of a. She changed the rhythm in different places where you know um, where I might have hung on to a shot a little longer. Uh, she cut it to give it an energy. Do you know what I'm saying? Totally. Yeah, to give it a different rhythm. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yes, but getting back to the rear screen, as far as the film was concerned, also, we we used the film at these different moments to show the character's point of view. It was sort of like, a, like when you're in a situation mm -hmm. uh, and something's very personal, it can, uh, that you're go you know that you're going to remember this moment forever. Mm -hmm. Um it may be somebody's hand. It could be a look. It could be this, you know, the side of their face. Just something um, that stays with you almost on an unconscious level. Mm -hmm. So, and then it took them. Hopefully, that was the idea. It would take the viewer there too. Mm -hmm. um, so, a lot of these techniques we tried. Now, the thing is with the rear screen, which was really interesting because I know they're doing it in television now. We use digital rear screen instead of film. In our other films, we use film as rear screen. Here we use digital rear screen so that by uh, defocusing the image just a little bit that you see out the window, mm -hmm. it actually looks like film. I see. Now was that difficult to film a digital, was it a projection? Or projection. Was it difficult to film a digital projection at all? Did it cause mm -hmm. any No, it No, actually it's, it's, much, it's much easier than, well actually that's interesting because when we first started planning the film our it, our intention was that maybe we would go film out at the end of it. And what do you mean film out? In other words, um, from your digital format, actually scan onto a film and be able to project it as a film. Mm -hmm. And so if that's what we're going to do, my initial tests had to go all the way through the workflow to that final product to make sure what happens if you screen on digital, I mean shoot on digital, use that as your rear screen projection, edit on video and then go back out to then go out to film does that all hold up and mm -hmm. I started to call places that you know did the scanning and everybody said I don't know nobody's ever tried it That's so we did the test and the test looked great really uh, and so we knew that this would work and actually doing rear screen uh, you know capturing on digital video is a lot easier because when you do it on film you have to have a film loop and you actually have to continually send that loop through a projector, oh, and then it rips and it scratches and tears. Where with video, you don't have any of those issues because you can just shoot and shoot and shoot. It's inexpensive, and the projection is very simple. Mm -hmm. You made a, you mentioned a, a term that I think is really important. It's the term workflow, mm -hmm. and in making a film, and also in, in no matter how small it is or how large it is, you have to develop a workflow, meaning 
from start to finish what exactly happens to the film does it and, and in your case I imagine that the planning must have been pretty intense well, and the testing pretty intense because you as you say you were doing things that maybe nobody you knew had done before right? one of the things that was uh, we did uh, even going back a step before we got on the set or even planned what we were going to do is that I had spent a lot of time and a lot, even some bucks, really, more so than what you would usually do, mm -hmm. to test the idea of the film as a script, as a narrative, as a fiction piece, as a, uh, you know, as a, even a literary, as a theater piece almost, you know. Mm -hmm. So we shot hundreds of stills and we projected them and we had, I got, I had actors and we rehearsed for about three weeks in a very tight theater situation with a stage manager and the whole thing, and then presented the piece to an audience to see what they thought because it was so nonlinear mm -hmm. and, you know, integrating past, present, and all that, that we wanted to see if it worked because even some really good actors that I had had a hard time following <laughs> the arc of the characters in its written form, and when they read it, I got some really strange responses, even violent responses really? to the material. Like, mm -hmm. like, you know, if this is the way scripts are going now, I don't even want to work <laughs> in it anyway. You know, I mean, they were, I never had that reaction by actors before. But once, what was really interesting, you know, I guess they took it scene by scene or whatever, but when it came through to the audience, they understood. They got the, the audience picture. got it, yeah. yeah. And so that was the first thing that said, it was a year before, that, okay, this can work. That's a fascinating process. I know one of the things that playwrights do is they'll workshop a play mm -hmm. for a long period of time, sometimes at a different theater. Mm -hmm. um, and so in a film situation, a lot of times people don't give, it, give a chance mm -hmm. to listen to the script, have some readings of it, um, and even workshop it, see what works, see what doesn't. Yeah. And then the extra thing of having, being able to bring in an audience and then see what their reactions are. Because even like in the theater, you do a, uh, even preview weeks on mm -hmm. most, in most theater productions where you do test things out on the audience, you change things, mm -hmm. whatever. So I think that's a really interesting process that you had. Now, are both of you um, professors? Yeah. Do you find that it's uh, easier to do things like that because you're a professor and you have um, resources such as actors and... Um, students available to you to help you in that process? The students, um, it's really been a good experience, and Linda could talk about this too, for me, uh, because when I bring my students aboard the productions, they've always write, written out, written about that, that that was where everything came together for them. They learned so much. Mm -hmm. And, um, for example, when we did Wall Time, both Doris Roberts and John Randolph, especially John Randolph, he was blacklisted. Right. And he was blacklisted during the McCarthy, McCarthy era. McCarthy era, and one of his first jobs was uh, with John Frankenheimer doing seconds mm -hmm. with Rock Hudson. And so all my students were gathered around as he was talking about the blacklisting era from person who was. <laughs> How could I ever duplicate that? You know, yeah, he, he is something. Is, now, I have met him a, a few times mm -hmm. and found him a really amazing he individual. Is. Um, so that must have been really nice. Doris Roberts also mm -hmm. is uh, quite something. Mm -hmm. um, so where, where do you teach now? I, I'm a professor at Cal State University Long Beach. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, in fact, I, a couple of years ago, I gave Spielberg his degree in 2000. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. I saw that. And I, I teach at uh, USC. Okay, great. And I teach cinematography, uh, which is great working in a, a school as large as USC because I'm really, at this point, I, I consider myself a filmmaker, but I really have specialized in cinematography. And, I, mm -hmm. and if I taught at a smaller school, I would have to teach history of film and things that I'm really not particularly at this point interested in. Mm -hmm. And so USC being the large school it is, I just teach cinematography. Mm -hmm. And that's great because then I feel like I'm being paid to do what I would normally want to read about and you know research anyway. So it's really a great Do you get a chance to research different film techniques um, through the students or do the students bring you things where you're, you're like, I don't know how that works, let's see. Always, how it, how always. It you know, uh, as much as I try to stay on top of what's going on, they are way ahead of me a lot of the time. So they will bring fi films in. First, they'll try to describe it. And my th first thing is, uh, let's not use words. Bring it in. Let's take a look at it. And then, you know, read some articles about it. Or, you know, the great thing of being in L.A. is you know most of these filmmakers. Or you can easily find someone who knows them and call them. We bring them in sometimes to talk to the students. So, you know, the openness of that environment plus being here in L.A., Mm -hmm. There's no way you can't find out things. So that's, that's, that's a great way to you know, learn. Now, you describe on your website um, that there is a cinema verite style. Could you describe that to me? Yeah, you know, um, cinema verite, and this is kind of another interesting thing. A few years ago, there was a whole uproar uh, about dogma mm -hmm. style of filmmaking where you don't use any... Uh, sound or music that's not actually in the location. You don't use dollies or anything that enhances. An, an example of a dogma film, a dogma, dogma was an organization. Yeah. Uh, uh, Celebration is a movie. If you want to check out that movie, it's a, done in the dogma style by the original people that came up with that. We'll put links on the website about dogma. Um, but you were saying. So actually, the dogma style, if you flip back, is really the original. Um, treatise on cinema verite, which is the filmmaker, the doc, usually documentary, but you can use it in dramatic film as well. Um, the person behind the camera, the director, st the story itself um, becomes the way the director has gotten the emotions out of the person they're filming. So the process is the film, mm. becomes the film. So you like provoke the conflict as you're filming. And you use very long takes, like they did in the Dogma style, mm -hmm. handheld. Um, you you don't add music later, you know, to to falsify the emotion, um, and you, you know, it comes from this idea of cinema truth, which is you know back with uh, what's his name, man with a movie, uh, with a man with a movie camera, mm -hmm. way, you know, turn of the century. But the cinema verite. Uh, started in 1960 with uh, Chronicles of the Summer hmm. in France and where the filmmaker just walked along and asked people how they were feeling you know, after World War II, the reactions to it and he got some incredible responses and now synergistically at that same time Cassavetes was doing Shadows mm -hmm. you know where it looks like he's just getting spontaneously getting the performances like in the documentaries and then uh, the Maisel brothers um, they went in that direction as well with salesmen and gray gardens and so on and so forth. So in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s, this style of filmmaking where um, 
film wasn't as expensive, and then video started to come out where you could do these long takes and interviews and, and shooting and keeping time as close as you can into real time, and there wasn't as much editing, you know, chopping it up into little pieces. Mm -hmm. The lighting was natural lighting. Mm -hmm. You didn't try to enhance, or it looked like natural lighting, let's put it that way. <laughs> and also, Good lighting always looks like it's natural lighting. <laughs> yeah. That's true. So it's a, very, it's a very personal kind of filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. As a... Um, as the cinematographer, did you find that uh, working on this film, did you do more lighting, less lighting than, than uh, other films you've worked on? Because mm. um, a lot of times the, the cinematographer well, yeah. is in charge well, basically of the lighting and everything that's yeah, showing up in the frame, the, right? But see, this one, because I mentioned the dogma, mm -hmm. we had this conscious because we were calling our film anti-dogma. Ah, how so? This is anti-dogma because we were using video, but we wanted to use everything that we would have been using in a high-budget Hollywood film in terms of lighting, dollies, uh, uh, set design. So we did do a lot of lighting, and fortunately mm -hmm. what I was able to do is hire some of my ex-students from mm -hmm. when I was teaching um, at various schools, and so I watched all the best students that I had, and I just called them and said, okay, it's time for you to repay any favor I've done for you. <laughs> and so, and I couldn't have done it otherwise, because we had, you know, a good, solid crew. Um, but even some days, you know, you're not paying them a lot of money. If, mm -hmm. if they get something offered, if they get a commercial for the day that's going to pay them much more than we could ever pay them, they would call and say, I just can't make it today, and you just have to make it work anyway. So, but no, there was quite a bit of lighting. Personally, my style is to, to not use a lot of lights and still make it look good. I, I, my training was, um, I started in documentaries, then I went to the American Film Institute and studied cinematography, and we shot video there. And so a lot of people have this attitude that video doesn't look good. This was a really a big thought, um, not so much today that digital video is around, but um, and my belief was that the only reason video didn't look good was because people didn't take care to light it properly. So I never had the prejudice, and so when digital video came in, I just thought, okay, it's just another way of making images. And, you know, if you have video, it's video. If you're shooting film, it's film. But you always treat both of them um, the same way. Um, so it, for this situation, I lit some of the film things less than the video things, especially the documentary within our film. Really? wouldn't have great lighting because documentary filmmakers don't have the time especially in the 80s because yeah to, to light really carefully and well mm -hmm. so actually I worked against that and that's where my experience as a documentary filmmaker I had to pull my go back and think how did I light these kinds of scenes so it made me go back and um, think about my um, learning curve through you know going from documentaries actually experimental to documentaries and then into narrative filmmaking so I had to use all my resources and techniques Wow. Um, Sharon, how long did it take you to shoot this entire movie? Um, about a, a, a month. A month? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was that uh, five five days a week, or how did you... It, it varied. I mean, sometimes it, it was sometimes six days, but and then sometimes a lot less when we were getting the plates. They're called plates. You For know, the projection. The projection are called oh, plates. Will you uh, describe that? What, what exactly is a plate? A plate is something that you film mm -hmm. uh, before the principal photography mm -hmm. that you're going to use during principal photography, and you might not need the actors, or you might not just need a couple actors, and you might not need a full crew. Okay. 
For instance, one example, in addition to what we talked about before, uh, that would be the car shots that we use the rear screen. A lot of times we did things where someone was supposed to be in a house that was in Hollywood Hills. Mm -hmm. We just had two walls on a set and a step sound stage, and I just film the Hollywood sign and we project that out the window. So you'd think that this house was in the mm -hmm. Hollywood Hills when in fact it wasn't. But then we would match that with outdoor scenes of a house that was like in Pasadena that marry those together in the movie and you think this is a house that we've seen that's a really nice house that's in the hills. So we did things wow. like that. Yeah. We did other crazy things where we had people in a car on the sound stage and we projected something happening outside the car. Then we'd have the people leave the car and we had pre-shot these plates, and then they would enter the scene in the rear screen projection that we were projecting. We right. matched yeah. up all this timing, things like that. Right. Yeah. And, and we had the actors. Oh, yeah, because one scene, <laughs> she's saying goodbye. To, she's going to Hollywood. The main character, uh, Madeline, is going to Hollywood now, and she has to leave her son, who is about 10 or 11, and she's really guilty about it, feels bad, you know, but she still wants to go. Mm -hmm. This is her big chance to go to Hollywood and to go to film school there and be a star and be famous. So um, she's sitting in the car with her friend who she's going across country with, this guy Daniel, and it's foggy, okay? Mm -hmm. We had foggy, and what I wanted to happen is when the fog lifts, you see the rear screen, which is her little boy just standing there like this, you know, straight up looking into the car, looking at his mommy, and she has to get out of the car and say goodbye. Mm. So so we had a, the fog wasn't lifting. <laughs> Never does on cue. Did you have a oh, they were fog crazy. machine? Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, people were like we, we were laughing. Um, yeah, it, was, it was funny because when we were doing a lot of these kind of scenes that we just described, um, the actors afterwards told us that number one, at least some of them, they didn't have a clue what we were trying to do, mm -hmm. and when they discussed it, they were convinced that we could never make it work. <laughs> and so when they finally did see it, they were like, oh, that's what you were explaining? So I realized that they really didn't know mm. these technical things we were trying to do. I mean, they did their jobs well as actors, but in terms of thinking, could we really pull this together, they had serious doubts. Did you storyboard <laughs> at all? We uh, didn't, uh, in some of our other films, we used to storyboard quite a bit, but in this one, no. But... Um, I, we had a really, really good production designer, um, Alberto uh, Reina Gonzalez, mm -hmm. and uh, he did do some storyboards, and it was great for him because we based our whole look on Edward Hopper's Western Motel. Mm. So everything was happening outside these windows and these different... Uh, we didn't... And some of the lighting that Linda did was exactly like the Hopper paintings. The Hopper paintings, if anybody doesn't know, uh, Hopper will put a link on the website, but he he was known, one of the things that he was known for was uh, the uh, the lighting source in the painting and the effect it would have on the painting. Uh, we'll put some examples on there so you can take a look at it, but it, it's really beautiful paintings that... Uh, there's a certain look to, uh, to mm -hmm. them. Yeah. And, and the other thing that we played with is a lot of his paintings have to do with people and windows. And so we use that motif of always having people look out windows and the window being, you know, representing the frame, the film frame. So we're playing with a lot of those types of uh, concepts. This reminds me somewhat of the theater where I've seen projections mm -hmm. like you guys are talking about um, has been in the theater. Sometimes they'll use it for... Uh, flashbacks and different things because I've done, you're in I've one done location. I've done a lot of that. I've you done, have. I, yeah, I worked with a guy 
uh, who's well known for that, using is uh, David Schweitzer. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, Film, uh, uh, a theater director. Theater mm-hmm. director. He also went to the American Film Institute, mm-hmm. but I worked on one of his productions at the Los Angeles Theater Center. Uh, it's a man's world. And um, that we sunk up really well because I of that. And, and also at Cal State Long Beach, uh, with a guy named Ron Lindblom, we did a really a 90-minute film uh, in corporation, incorporating a theater piece where uh, uh, it was really beautiful um, in, in that respect where we used, once again, film as memory and uh, he, the guy's in a confessional because he murdered someone. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, the action is combined, totally integrated with the action on the stage. Yeah, so it's really... Multimedia. Yeah, it's thing. trying to. The, the reason why it's not for itself, it's really, um, it's sort of in my mind like a film cubism mm. where you can combine memory, a dream, fantasy, and reality all in the same image. Because yeah. it's, it's more a realistic way of seeing. You know? I think it's interesting that there are many films out now that deal with nonlinear structures. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're still dealing with real-time nonlinear structures, where I think what's interesting, what, what we were attempting to do is not just do it in, not just cut up real, time of reality, but what Sharon was talking about. What are your memories? What are your perceptions? And combine those in, in, in a nonlinear way. So at some point, you might not be looking just at one point in time. You're maybe looking at a couple points in time. Yeah, right. Uh, simultaneously. Because mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're all here in this interview, yet we have... At the same time that we're all three of us here talking, I'm thinking certain thoughts. I flash forward in my memory. I'm thinking what's going to happen three hours from now. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, oh, something she said reminded me of something on the set. So, and if all three of us do that, yeah. I mean, those are all those really, you know, realities going on. I, I think that, you know, what goes on in your memory. And, and we all feelings. bring our, our yeah. experiences to right. the table. Right. And we have those here. And we, we experience this experience that we're having, we experience in different ways. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that's what's the exciting part of, of what film can do. You know, it's so young, yet, and and we still hold to a very literal way that we deal with film. And I think that that's, we've done it and we've done it well. And I'm thinking next generation of what we do with film. Hope I'm hoping it goes in that direction. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now. The, well, I want to change gears a little bit here and talk about the raw food movement. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, switch because uh, you know it's kind of an abrupt change, like but raw f- the I raw really footage, want to find out food. what you, yeah what you have to say about uh, raw food. Um, do you have an experience with people who eat raw food only? Well, you're not going to believe this, but I did a documentary. You did, yeah, mm-hmm. and it was about my experience with raw food because it was. Uh, in the early 80s. Uh-huh. Uh, I did a film, a documentary on a woman who had cancer. And she was really, you know, pretty, she was terminal. Mm-hmm. But the, the point is that she completely changed her diet and she grew her own vegetables. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, she did this diet that was called a scene. E-S-S-E-N-E. And it was all raw foods where she juiced everything. And because of that, she lived a year longer and in really good health, like with free really? of pain, free of chemotherapy. And uh, unfortunately, because food is a very, very difficult thing for everybody, it's personal. At the end of it, she, the year or whatever, she started to lapse in the diet and eventually she, and she did die. Mm-hmm. 
uh, after a year, and so I did this film. But anyway, after that film, and this is the problem with documentary, you get too wrapped up. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I'm going to die. You know, it's like, I'm yeah. being very, like, I decided, I'm going to do it. This is really great. So, but I joined this uh, group. Mm -hmm. This is back in Philadelphia. And I worked at ABC there on a documentary show. So um, it was called uh, Temple Beautiful. And they made raw food, raw food dishes. So I became a raw foods vegetarian, and you had to go through a process of detoxification of your body. I see. So you're getting out all the bad things that you've put in there when you've been for eating the, the, for the I guess, hot dogs, yeah, whatever. pizza, all preservatives, white bread that your mm -hmm. parents gave you. Mm -hmm. Wonder bread. Wonder bread and everything. And uh, I got really, really sick. You got sick from it? Really sick. But... Do you think that was just no, detoxing? Yeah, it was a detoxing. But the, I, I, because I was in this group, and I, you have to, don't go to the doctor. Keep to, this is, you know, and I was like, oh my God, really in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. But I stuck with it. You did? Yeah. And uh, it was fantastic afterwards. You just pushed through that pushed through phase. That, pushed through the phase. Mm. And it was purely raw foods. And I worked for ABC, and we went on a trip. Right, at, not right. I mean, I was on the We went on the trip with the military airlift command to the Azores and to Iceland. To Iceland? Yeah, with this military airlift command. So the nurses aboard the thing, mm -hmm. when I slept, my blood pressure, it was so low, they thought I was dead. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. They thought I was dead. I remember. I only ate figs and almonds. I wouldn't go to any of the restaurants oh or anything. I remember at one point when I met you, I was open to the idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it had to taste good. Yeah. It, it, you know, That's and, the hard and, part. and I was. It, you could, and Sharon could bring, would bring things around, and, and as long as they tasted good, I was open to it. But I remember there was one point where I think I got sick. And you had something that you said I had, to, you were going to make for me. And it was, you, you left it in the oven with the oven being at a very low temperature, remember? No, no, I, no nothing was on the, in the oven. Well, maybe it just sat on top of it. Anyway, I remember it ended up looking to me kind of like a mud pie. And I said, that's it. That, this is my limit. I won't go, I won't eat this thing. It looks too much like a mud pie. No, you, have to, you have to be motivated. But the yeah. people at Temple Beautiful, a lot of them had, had gone to, had rheumatoid arthritis. Uh -huh. or they had huge... So a lot problems. of people will come to this kind of thing yeah, because they were, they're having they were cured. Yeah, and you were cured. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I, I think it's amazing to think of 20 or 30 years ago, what was, even in my parents' house, what they ate, versus the, the influence that we have had and on what, my, what families eat, I think. You know, when I look back, I mean, I grew up on canned peas and canned corn and things like that. My parents would never eat things like that anymore. Everything is so much more about fresh food. So I think it's an amazing influence yeah, that we've had in middle class families. At first they made they fun, eat. you know, mm -hmm. like, you're going to die, you're going to die. But, you know, um, it was it was really good. It was hard to keep up. Then I remember um, I drinking coffee at one time and then I slowly got back because it's hard. You couldn't go to any restaurant. It's hard to maintain it. It's yeah. very hard to maintain and you had to buy all this book, but you had to cook. Not cook in the sense of cooking and, you know, putting it in the oven, because mm -hmm. that's when all the vegetables, all the things was, were lost out of the food, but in order to get protein, there were certain things that you had to do, it was a discipline, 
And then part of that discipline was meditation, which I could never get into. (laughs) And the other part of it was the guy who said, and if you have too much sex, uh, you'll lose your chi, your energy, and I thought, oh, that's it. I'll die a little younger, but I'll enjoy myself a little more. That's and funny. juicing is big, I think, too. Yeah, I the mean, juicing, yeah. I juice, yeah, we juiced uh, cantaloupe. I think one of the things that I've learned just from over the past couple of months talking to people about raw food and these things is I'm trying to stay away from food that's been overly processed mm-hmm. because I feel like they're the 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 chemicals and hormones and things that are going into making these products, uh, making the chickens bigger, making the products last longer on the shelf, these are the things that are causing us a lot of trouble. Well, that's the things we talked about from the very beginning, and and this is seen, they have books and everything on it, that I, you know, talked to the guy that was the head of this temple, beautiful, about, for example, if you eat meat, you know, people have so many things wrong with their colon. Mm Mm-hmm. And from eating meat, because it never leaves your body entirely. So, you know, think about meat standing out without being, you know, refrigerated or anything for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it's in your body, and, and that's it, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, uh, I, I would, it's, it's an incredible discipline. It's absolutely the right way to go. It's just very, very difficult in our society with wanting to go to a restaurant. And, yeah dining being so much a part of things. Yeah. I think that the main point that I take away from that too is that um, you should just be conscious of what you eat and not leave it up to the people who are making the food because uh, and the food that you buy in the store, mm-hmm. you have to read the label because their job a lot of times, people who are who are making manufacturing food products, mm-hmm. their job is just to sell it to you and make their profit margin go up. And so our job is to say, well, this is what we want and this is what we don't want. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm willing to pay a little bit more to get organic eggs or something because I feel like it's worth it. As me. long as, yeah, as long as you can believe, you know, that, that it's true. That it's true. It's, it's truly organic. <laughs> but what I'm finding now, I'm on another kick now uh-huh. what with is food. That? Uh, after, you doing, me. after doing my <laughs> Holocaust film, uh-huh. I thought to myself, now how did these people live? Mm-hmm. Even though they came out of there as skeletons. Mm-hmm. And I'm convinced now it's because we eat too much. Way, way, way too much. Mm-hmm. So um, my thyroid must be very low because I'm not real, real skinny yet. But I I think that we I eat hardly anything now. Mm-hmm. That was something that my co-host said one day. He said that he uh, saw something on, I think it was 60 Minutes, where he said they were saying the one unifying thing with all these people who had lived a long time uh, into their hundred and, you know, hundred and tens or whatever, uh, was that they didn't eat very much. Mm-hmm. And they did a study with mice, I just found, because I was talking to some, somebody told me this, that they did, uh, the, the mice that ate the least were, lived the longest. And um, now I'm realizing, my God, I see a big meal, I could only take a couple bites. Mm-hmm. Or during the day, I'll hardly have anything at all. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that works out. I guess you have to make sure you have... Yeah, you have to get your vitamins. I think you have to um, be in tune with, you know, your your body and what your needs are. Uh, I mean, if I don't eat greens for a few days, I 
get this distinct feeling like I have to have a salad. And I can go without it for a few days, but I think you really need to pay attention to that. And it's interesting because when I, the impressions we have of ourselves of do we eat a lot or not. Now, I don't think I eat a lot, yet I have friends who say, you eat a lot. But when people <laughs> stay with, like live with me or, or visit with me, what they'll comment to me, and I don't notice it anymore because it's just the way I eat, they'll say, number one, you don't eat between meals. Mm -hmm. Number two, you don't have snacks in your house. And I'm like, no, why would I? And they said, well, so that when you sit down to eat, you may eat a lot at one sitting, uh -huh. but between the, you know those times in the day, you don't regularly snack and things but, like yeah, and that. And also, you're very active. You exercise and, a yeah, lot. Yeah, hyper. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, active. That's... Well, that's great. Thanks so much for talking about that. That's, I find it fascinating. Um, I'm going to give my film bite, and then you can join in and give your film bite if okay. you wish. A um, food bite. <laughs> or you can give a, a food bite if you like, too. Uh, my film bite from talking with you um, is something that came up, is that idea of workflow. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to design your workflow before you start into your project so that you can plan as much as possible. There are going to be variables that change and things like that, but you can plan as much as possible. How am I going to get from A to Z or whatever it is? Um, so that's, that's mine. I, I agree with I think that in also when your budget is limited, that becomes even more important because mm -hmm. you don't have any extra funds if things go off. So that even makes the uh, work thinking through the workflow more important. Um, I would say embrace your handicaps as an independent filmmaker. One thing that we don't usually have is a lot of money or a lot of time, but you can always be creative. And the other thing is we can deal with subject matter and we can deal with it in ways that bigger budget films can't. So to compete with Hollywood, you'll never win. Go the other route and deal with subject matter and styles and techniques that they, they can't afford. That's really good advice. I like it. Yours? My advice? Um, like I said before, I think it's really important to test out the script mm -hmm. and not, being, uh, not be afraid to, you know, don't, don't hang on to the, what you've originally written. You know, if, uh, work with the actors because you can always find people that will work with you with the script. With the script. On the other hand, you know, if you feel you want to try something, you know, do it, because it is your it is your film, and it's uh, and especially as an independent, that's the luxury that you have is not having to be dictated to by um, many people as you would in a studio. That's good. That's that's good. I also like that idea of having actors come in and read it because when you write something on the page, it isn't always what you think it is, uh, when you get hear somebody say the words, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that doesn't work, I need to change that. Mm -hmm. And it becomes very obvious. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's better that that happens at a time when you haven't spent any money, you just have your friends over reading it, mm -hmm. than when you're on the set and you've already changed things, you know, set things. Or worse yet, at the screening, there's something magical that happens when the first time you're in an audience with your film, all those slow moments. Mm -hmm. Oh, do you, you feel, feel it. those? Oh, yeah. when you watch yeah, your film, you're like, hey, watch like my theater, film. Even just, just even if you're doing a play, but that, and I mean, a film, you, you could, you just feel too. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. amazing? That's yeah. what I love. I mean, I, I don't always love it, but when I have <laughs> a film that I made and I bring somebody even into my studio just says, hey, watch this film. And I sit back there and I'm like, wow, I am seeing this in a completely yeah. different way. I've got to take that entire part out I or think whatever. you pick up their, um, when they 
feel bored. Yeah. I think we feel that. And if you're physically sitting in that theater with them, that scene that seemed really well paced to you all of a sudden seems endlessly long and you're embarrassed and before they even say anything to you you say to them I know that scene has to get cut down and they go I was just going to say that to you so but you know and that's that's yeah. an important thing um, to have that's those screenings good. although Cassavetti then I, uh, to be devil's advocate Cassavetti's when he showed a few of his films I think one of them was opening night or uh, husbands or maybe a couple of them and the audience really liked it mm -hmm. laughing happy he go back and change it <laughs> because it wasn't. Funny. He didn't want the audience to be happy. He That's like Bertolt Brecht. Brecht did that too. Yeah, apparently, uh, in a couple of his plays, people, you know, applauded, standing ovation at the end and of Mother Courage, I think it was, and he was just livid because he wanted them to be so depressed mm -hmm. when she dragged her wagon off the stage, mm -hmm. and so he was horribly disappointed. So that's interesting. Okay, so thank you very much, Sharon, and thank, thank you. you, Linda, for being You're here. Welcome. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me here. It's fun. <laughs> and uh, and that's, our, that's the end of Film Shots. If you have any questions uh, for Linda or Sharon or for us or any suggestions about the show, please email us at filmshots at gmail.com, and we'll see you next week.